welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I am your host, Tim Minichi. Joining me once again, Jason Ziak. How are you doing? Pretty good, Tim. I'm excited about this album we're going to review today because this was one that I remember seeing the album in the stacks at the radio station, but I never actually listened to it. (laughs) I think that's going to be one of the constant themes of the show. Yeah, it's it's album covers that you looked at and you went, well, I'll get to this eventually. And then, you know, (laughs) four years later. later. Yeah. (laughs) Or or in my case, six years later. uh, And then you just went... What was that record sound? What did that record sound like? Oh, yeah. wow! I didn't really expect it to sound like this. So we're reviewing Paw and their album Dragline, which came out in 1993. And I'm going to give a little little history on this. Paw was from uh, Lawrence, Kansas, which I believe is the home of uh, Ultimate Fake Book. Am I right about that? Oh, wow. I, I, Talk about obscure. Uh, I guess they weren't a '90s band, but no, they weren't. I, their first album might have come out in the '90s. I have to check that. But yeah, Ultimate Fake Book, who we played a show with. That's the only reason I'm mentioning them. They're from Lawrence, Kansas. Formed in 1990, they put out uh, three full-length albums and then an album of like covers and B-sides. They were on A&M Records. A&M Records apparently signed every band that we're going to talk about. Because I think so far every band we've talked about uh, has been on A&M. That's probably a reason why A&M Records no longer exist. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> the reason. They got dropped after the uh, second album, of course, because that's what always happened. Either you put out one record, disappear, or you get dropped after the second. This was the first album? So this was their first album. In 98, the guitarist Grant Fitch and the drummer Peter Fitch, I think they're related, formed the band Palomar and released an album. That was the same year that the Covers and B-Sides album came out. And then the Paw back, got back together in 2000, released a album then disappeared and then in 2008 they reformed again to play some shows and then this is the random bit of information about paw in 1997 bassist charles bryan became quote the fastest human in suborbital freefall reaching 327 miles per hour what the <laughs> apparently i guess freefall is falling you know jumping out of an airplane and okay Wow, there's absolutely nothing to do in Kansas, is there? No, there isn't. And this is the funny part. He's married and he has two kids. His kids' names, Emma and Rocket. Wow. Yeah. So I'd be best if I was the girl. Yeah, that you didn't get a cool name. Could have been named Jet or something. Subterfuge. (laughs) Subterfuge. The one quote that I saw, and this is probably a quote that comes up amongst about half the bands in the 90s. They were supposed to be, quote, the next Nirvana. Wow. Which I believe was applied to Silverchair and yeah. Bush and about 50 other bands. But this album came out in 93? Yeah, 93, which was two years after Nevermind. Nevermind right. came out in 91. Okay. And I'm going to get into that. Yeah. This was an album that I, I had listened to and then I, I gave it to you to listen to. So what was your um, what was your feedback on this? What did you think of it? Well, I have to be honest. Um, so you gave me a bunch of music at once and... Over the course of however long it's been, a month or so, um, you know, a song will pop up here and there when I'm just listening randomly to, to iTunes. Um, whenever a pause song would pop up, I would skip it. So going into this, I wasn't optimistic that uh, I was going to like it very much. sort of. But I was surprised. The thing that's weird about this album is you really have to, you have to listen to the songs in their entirety. You can't just sample it. You have to 
you know, go through the whole album start to finish and you have to listen to every song because the thing that's interesting is it'll start off with sort of a typical, you know, tuned down, you know, muted uh, guitar riff, sometimes Nirvana-ish, sometimes Soundgarden-ish. I was going to say Alice in Chains. There was a lot of stuff that reminded me of Dirt. Yeah, but all of a sudden out of nowhere, these, like, choruses happen that almost have like a southern rock sort of sound to them mm-hmm. like they'll go from this muted guitar heavy guitar punk thing or metal sounding thing all of a sudden to like picking clean acoustic guitar comes in all of this sort of you know really interesting melody going on with the guitar parts and the bass parts and then right back to the verse and it'll be this you know typical grunge style verse and i think the part the point to me of the album is you know the sort of the journey that these songs go on by a song like seven or eight the formula starts to become apparent what they're doing but um up until then and there's some there's a couple tunes after that that are that are pretty good regardless but up, up until then it's really kind of an unexpected journey that you, you kind of go through you don't know what's going to happen next well um, uh, yeah musically on uh, on track three, which uh, is Jesse, and that's the that was the single. It actually yeah. got actually got played on like Headbangers Ball, from what I read. There's like a pe- there's like a pedal steel or a lap steel during the bridge of that song. It's that totally out mind. of nowhere. Yeah, when that came on, I was like, what just happened? I, I was just, at one point I was you know I was sort of completely floored, but I was totally intrigued. Like, you know, this is so cool. I mean, that it's kind of funny that. They were compared to Nirvana because, I mean, Nirvana can never do those sorts of things. No, no, not at all. It's sort of, it's just such a contrast between the, some of the verses being so simple and boring to the choruses being really, like, lush and amazing. It's sort of really bizarre. I mean, it's 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 kind of fun to listen to, and there's parts of it where you're just like, there's genius in here somewhere. It's just, I be I guess I'd be kind of curious to hear what some of the latter stuff sounds like to see how they develop that sound well yeah definitely i think we'll get to those those albums down the road it's funny when i was listening to this the lead singer has a very i don't want to say atypical delivery style but he's he's doing a lot of of talk singing and yelling yeah and it kind of reminded me of you know sort of a punk or hardcore style how about uh how about glenn danzig well danzig but then you know you combine those riffs and they reminded me of like helmet where they're very simple drop d you know riffing and then you've got this guy, and if you read some of the lyrics, the lyrics are actually kind of interesting. And he, mm-hmm. it turns out that the guy actually put out a book of poetry after Paul broke up. It kind of reminded me of Craig Finn of the Hold Steady. Not, you know, obviously the Hold Steady are, you know, the now, but it had this like lyrical density that a lot of bands at that time were not doing. And his delivery is sort of loose, like like the Hold Steady in terms of like. It almost sounds spontaneous at times, like he's kind of just making it up as it goes. Um, but I mean, I wouldn't say his voice necessarily sounds like his. But yeah, no, no, agree. just the, the delivery and the um, so that yeah, like that stream of consciousness uh, way of delivering the lyrics are definitely um, in Crank Finn territory. But yeah, Glenn Danzig is it's a funny um, comparison because there's definitely a hardcore element to the history of the band. Yeah, uh, and he kind of does like a, at times he does like a forced low like you know tone to his voice that sort of sounds like Danzig and then obviously the, the kind of talking style and not always being very melodic 
Um, and, and I think that's the one thing that, you know, by the end of the album, you start to get wary of. Um, that and, boy, I, <clears throat> I made a note here that a couple of the songs, if, if just somebody else in the band could just throw in a, a backup part, a backup vocal, it would just be killer. But, you know, he doesn't double track his voice. There's no extra vocals. It's basically one vocal track, every song, you know, basically anything melodic that happens it's coming from the guitar parts which are really pretty pretty cool and the, and the textures and the tones that they, they have going on with the guitars are are really uh <clears throat> really well done really interesting but man vocally by the end you're just i was just love wanting like I, I wanted him to go somewhere else vocally that i just i you know assume he can't do but i kind of wish somebody else in the band could come in with a backup part and a chorus and it would really just be sort of the icing yeah, I agree on the vocal stuff. There was definitely an opportunity to do some something with a harmony or a, a doubling of the vocals that they just, you know, maybe that's something that we'll discover on the later records down the road that they actually did embrace multi-tracking the vocals. Overall, the production is not spectacular. I mean, it's pretty stock in terms of the drum sound and the and the guitar sound. Like you're mentioning with the riffs, they're pretty standard drop D, 90s grunge and, and um, hard rock riffs. The thing that sets them apart, like you mentioned, is is those choruses. Those choruses, you get to them and you're not expecting them. And those chimey guitars, those like clean chimey guitars, I think are what really like set them apart because they could have gone really heavy and bombastic in a lot of those choruses, and they actually bring it back and sort of right. restrain themselves on the choruses. There's definitely a a unique dynamic to to what they're doing. They're not following the typical playbook, uh, particularly of the '90s, of you know, quiet, loud, quiet, loud, and like yeah, like you said, the chimey uh, guitars, and it sounds like maybe they're playing Rickenbackers. I, I was meaning to look up to see what kind of guitars they're playing because it has a very distinctive sound to it when they get to those choruses. But one one thing I, I kept kept thinking of is because of the you mentioned the production, which is good, but it's I would say the playing is it's a bit loose uh, and it can't. You know, when you hear a band like recorded like that, can't help but think about what they would sound like live. And I just kept thinking throughout the songs, is you know, either this band live is brilliant or just a complete and utter disaster. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I yeah. Like I could just see, I, I can't see it in the middle. I could just see it being one of those things like, wow, like live, it really just all comes together and it's just huge sounding or. It's or they're just, just falling so apart and so weird and there's so much texture in the album that they can't do live yeah it yeah. just completely falls apart well i think we're kind of in agreement that this is this is something that's worth checking out that there is an unexpected element if you just listen to these songs at the beginning you're probably going to think that this is just a typical dumb hard rock grunge record from the 90s but there's actually some depth uh to these songs that are um worth investigating would you agree yeah, definitely. I, I think that was that was exactly my uh, my journey to and through this album. So awesome! All right, well that's it. Another episode of Dig Me Out is in the books. I want to thank Jay for helping me out on this one again, and stay tuned for another episode next week of Dig Me Out. It's the doctor, see good and Visit the Dig Me Out podcast at digmeoutpodcast.blogspot.com. 
join our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at Dig Me Out Podcast. Yeah.